Let's take our Bibles again. Let's turn to that portion of God's Word in 2 Timothy, chapter 2. We'll read verse 14, although today's message will be weaving our way through the whole section here to the end of the chapter. We'll do that several times in the next few weeks, coming back to these verses. But verse 14 says, Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. And I seek God's face again for his help, and we come now to his precious word. Almighty God and Father, we come into thy presence, and we thank you, dear Father, for again the situation that we find ourselves in at this time. We are a people with your word in our hands, with the opportunity to hear the word of God expounded. This is our remarkable privilege. And we pray you'd help us to treasure each opportunity we have to be under the word. I thank you, dear Father, for the privilege of preaching the word. And we realize, O oh God, that these privileges, they come with responsibilities to preacher and to hearer. And we cannot, rightly, we cannot rightly go through our responsibilities without the help of your Spirit. And so bless us now. Give us grace, O Lord, grace upon grace, that the Word will be preached with power and clarity and authority, and that your Father, everyone who hears, would hear to the salvation of their souls. Help us, O Lord, we pray. You are able, you are good and a kind God. We claim again the promise that you will sanctify us. So bless us now in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen and amen. Friday morning, uh, just before lunch, I got a phone call from Reverend Elder uh, from Orlando. Uh, he wanted to talk over a little bit about a new series he's going to begin this coming Lord's Day. So I trust in Orlando about now, he is embarking on a series of studies on the book of Ephesians. And as we were talking about that, uh, we were remarking together that there is quite a lot of detail in the Word of God regarding this church. It, it pops up from time to time, and it's, it's interesting and worthwhile to see how those things all would come together. So turn back to Acts chapter 19. That's where our brother Logan is preaching this morning, I believe. He's going to take them back to the beginning of the church. And so in Acts chapter 19, you see that Paul, he goes to Ephesus, verse number 1. He comes to Ephesus and finds, he finds some of these disciples, and they're disciples of John. And they come to hear of Christ, and they're baptized in Christ's name, and they receive the Holy Spirit. That's all uh, very important in the beginning of the church in Ephesus. But look what it says in verse number 10 regarding Paul's ministry. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. It's a time of, of some stability in Paul's ministry. He's laboring there in the word, and it is a labor that is marked by God's blessing. Turn over to chapter 19, the verse number 20. It says, There so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. God's Blessing his servant, blessing the word. The word of God is having free course and being glorified in their midst. But then when you turn across just one chapter, 
And you get to chapter 20, Paul calls the elders from Ephesus to meet with him. And he understands by the Spirit of God that they have troubles ahead. They've known God's blessing, several years of blessing and growth. Yes, opposition without, but blessing within. And then you get to chapter 20, and Paul tells the elders in verse number 28, Take heed therefore unto yourselves, and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch. You see the importance here? This church that has known God's blessing is now being given words of warning regarding the reality that false teaching will be propagated in their midst and will indeed bring harm and damage to the church. Those false teachers are clearly still there when Paul addresses Timothy in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, several times, we'll see it today, deals with the issue of false teaching. And even in 2 Timothy chapter 2, we read of these men that are there, Hymenaeus and Philetus. 2 Timothy 2, verse number 17. It's a church that's been blessed, but a church that has wrestled with false teaching in its midst. So you turn across now, please, to Revelation chapter 2. Where we come towards the last book of our New Testament, and we see again the church in Ephesus pops up in redemptive history. Revelation chapter 2, the verse number 1, unto the angel of the church in Ephesus. Again, the Lord, through John, now speaking to the servant of God in Ephesus at this point, later on, likely in the A.D. 90s or thereabouts. The Lord says, I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them, listen, which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. And so even here, the Lord recognizes that the church in all its troubles has, by God's grace, held on to orthodoxy. Now, of course, of course, in this part, there's a warning and a concern given. Nevertheless, verse number four, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Orthodox, but cold. Orthodox, but become dry in their orthodoxy. Yet that does not imply that their orthodoxy does not matter. They are commended for their orthodoxy. And so when you see the warning in chapter 2 of Revelation, that's not in some way to saying they were wrong in maintaining orthodoxy. It's a good thing. But their hearts are cold. And so what you see, Acts 19 through to Revelation chapter 2, you see God tracing and just highlights the history of this church. Acts 19, Acts 20, First and Second Timothy, because Timothy's in Ephesus at this time, and then Revelation chapter 2, you get these insights into the life of the church. And the sovereign God, sovereignly testing his people with false teachers in their midst. I say he's testing them, because when false teachers are in the midst, the people of God are feel forced to face certain questions. Is God's word true? 
It's a test of faith. You have someone perhaps in your midst and they're going from place to place and home to home and they're spreading their new notions and their ideas and those ideas are being heard and the people are being tested. Do I believe the word of God? And of course we do. Oh, that it were so simple. Oh, the devil is not so subtle that God's people could so easily discern truth and error. These things illustrate the point that it is easy for God's people at times to be deceived. Therefore, there are these warnings that are given. Is God's word true? And in light of that, there's also the question, is God's servant trustworthy? Can I trust God's teacher? Can I trust a Timothy? Or those trained by Timothy, are they really reliable? Because what the new guys are saying is not what the old guys are saying. They're not saying the same things. One's right, one's wrong. Who are we going to trust? It's a matter of testing God's people. And we should live in the assumption that if we're in this church for the next 30 years, that there'll be times when we're being tested by false teaching that may well come into our midst. Got to ask ourselves the question can we trust God's word? And will we trust God's teachers? You see, this has an impact upon the hearers. If you go back to 2 Timothy chapter 2, you'll see a reference is made to the hearers in verse 14. To the subverting of the hero, the hearers. That word subverting we'll see later on is again the word that we get our word catastrophe from. That is of the destruction of the hearers, the undoing of the hearers. It is unto their catastrophic end is the idea. And see, those who are false teachers, they damage and they destroy the hearers of God's word. You see, in this section, verse 14 through to the end, there's a lot of content that is relevant to pastors. The whole section is really Paul talking to Timothy, here's what it is to be a pastor, and here's what you must also tell others who are called to that office. Verse 14, by the way, just as a point of comment and introduction, or comment and instruction, verse 14, of these things put them in remembrance, more than likely goes back to verse number 2. The things thou hast heard of me, the same commit thou to faithful men, of these things put the faithful men in remembrance. What's the, the connection of thought here? What are those things? Well, all that Paul has just said to Timothy regarding suffering for the gospel and being faithful to hold fast to the truth. But the instruction to these faithful men comes from Paul in contrast to the false teachers. You see, it matters to the hearers who they hear. There are faithful men. Faithful men must be faithful in their ministry. And there are false teachers. And these are compared and contrasted by Paul in this section. Again, just to make another comment that should not be ignored. Verse number 14 presumes that God's people sit under the hearing of God's word. There is such a thing as hearing the word. Again, and today there's an assumption you can be a believer without being part of a gathered church under the hearing of God's word. The Apostle Paul knew no such thing. Hearing's assumed. Not commanded, don't come under it, but be careful who you hear. That's the difficulty. No, whether you hear or not, but who do you hear when they expound God's word? You see, hearing is not neutral. This is not a neutral experience. If you hear at all, 
it will either help you or harm you. I know there are some when they come to church, I was guilty of that in my teenage years, they come to church and they're determined not to hear anything. They're, they're here in body, but not in soul. And so their determination is not to hear a thing at all, but those who do come to hear, that hearing is either positive or it's negative, either helpful or harmful. You see, Paul, in this section, just as I introduce it to you now, in this section, he has got two burdens. He certainly has a burden for the false teachers themselves. The last verses illustrate that. He realizes that his desire is that God would bring these false teachers to repentance, that they'd recover themselves from the snare of the devil. Again, the devil is the one behind these false teachers. He's a burden for them. He wants them to restore it. He doesn't want them to go to a lost eternity. But he also clearly has a burden for the hearers. Understanding the impact of these teachings on us, he gives us instruction regarding the identity and the impact of false teachers. And that's today what I want to think over with you at this time, just to muse over some of these features we see regarding false teaching in this section of 2 Timothy. Not to begin with then the content of this false teaching. The content was like summarize it in two words. Not truth. This false teaching is marked by the fact that it is not true. And you see that in verse number 18. It says there, who concerning the truth have erred. There's a departure from truth in these false teachers. And you see it also in the words to the faithful man of God that they are to rightly divide the word of truth, verse number 15. And so the contrast is there are those who are following God's word, God's truth, and there are those who are swerving away from God's truth. And so the false teachers, they are marked by words that are not true. Now, untrue words in the church of God can come in two different forms. Untrue words can come by way of man's invention. And the idea they, 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 they simply bring their own ideas to the pulpit. We see that in many of the mega churches today. They just got their own notions, positive thinking, self-help strategies. And they bring it to the pulpit and they preach self-help strategies as if it was the word of God. But it's not the word of God at all. It's false teaching. But it can also come, we know, these untrue teachings can come from a misuse of God's word. You turn across to 2 Peter chapter 3, and you'll see that there, 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, in the verse number 16, again referring to Apostle Paul, Peter writing here, as also in all Paul's epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood. So there's, there's the reason whereby false teachers at times can get traction. There's the recognition that all the Bible is not all easily understood. And so what happens? The unlearned and the unstable rest, they twist, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. And so you get difficult parts of God's word that are then manipulated in such a way as to lead people into error, to destruction, and not in the way of truth. You see, there's two separate ways. False teachers come with invention, or they come by manipulation, manipulating the Word of God to their own agenda. I suppose primarily today, we often see it in terms of the second coming. 
There are difficult parts of God's Word regarding the second coming, and so false teachers can use those difficult parts and manipulate them and twist them to bring about their own purpose and their own agenda. And so we have false teachers here in 2 Timothy. And they are those who, if they talk generally, they are guilty, <coughs> excuse me, about a misuse of words. Verse 14. Hear this in terms of the instruction. To the faithful man, that the faithful man should not strive about words. You see it also in verse number 23. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid. To faithful men, don't strive about words and avoid these foolish and unlearned questions. Now here we get to the point that again there are possibilities as to what Paul is referring to here. The words, again in verse number 16, are referred to as being profane and vain babblings. That word simply means fruitless words of no benefit. Parents, when you have a young baby, there's nothing more that you enjoy than their babblings. I'm sorry to break it to you. They don't mean anything. We don't know what's going on in the baby's mind. But it's not intelligent communication. They're not revealing some profound insight. They're learning to verbalize thought and speech. And yes, it's going to develop. But in the babbling stage, it's of no benefit. And so the false teachers here, the ends the same. The words are being used, but they're not helpful. They're not beneficial. So what are they? I'm not sure exactly. But we do have help elsewhere. Turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Because this idea is not just taught in 2 Timothy 2. We see it elsewhere. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse number 3. Again, dealing with these false teachers. If any man teach otherwise... And consent not to wholesome or to sound or to healthy words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which according to godliness he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings. Listen to this. Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, Supposing that gain is godliness from such withdraw thyself. There's another description of these false teachers. They're coming and the source, the source of their instruction is their own corrupt mind. They are not regenerate. They don't know the Lord. And they are those in their corruptness are destined to the truth. Their words are not according to Christ Jesus. And so you see it described there. Also then back in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Again here, Paul speaking to Timothy in light of these false teachers. Timothy, don't you give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith. So do. Remember the questions we saw in 2 Timothy 2? Don't get involved in these questions, these speculations. Preach what is revealed truth. Don't get involved in all these fables and endless genealogies. Now the fables we know from Titus chapter 1, 14, are described as being Jewish fables, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. And so when you put all this together, 
you get some idea of what is being taught here. It is likely Jewish teaching that has come into the church and there are examples in the literature of the Jews before Christ's birth, the B.C.'s. There's examples in Jewish literature of them catching hold of genealogies, getting a name, and building this elaborate story out of that name. New teachings, new doctrines, as they invent stories regarding a particular name and a particular genealogy. There's also times when they use these genealogies to make up all sorts of numbers and that sort of thing. You've also got examples, again, of course, we know this in Christ's time, when there were those who were teaching us doctrines, the commandments of men. So there's inventions and details and speculations regarding fine details of the law. I suppose today, again, we see it sometimes in people's endless speculations regarding the second coming of Christ, or at times, movies and books that take a Bible character and build this elaborate story in and around that Bible character. And people take that story, that novel, that book, and they presume, well, this must be what this person was. Again, I've mentioned before the, the fears, concerns I have regarding the cinematography of Christ's life. Lots of problems, second commandment problems, of course, graven images. But beyond that, there is the insertion of emotions and attitudes to Christ that are not revealed in the Word of God. And you hear of people, they, oh, I love the chosen. And they love the chosen because it allows me to see Christ's humanity. I see into him. I, I see his personality. And what are they seeing? They're seeing an actor's interpretation of the words of God regarding a raised eyebrow or a smirk or a smile. And it's got no basis in God's Word. Have nothing to do with it. It is incredibly dangerous. And it illustrates exactly what's happening here. You know, if people want to see Christ's humanity, tragically, it illustrates a problem with their preacher's preaching. They're not preaching to the people a personal Christ. They need it somewhere else because it's not in the church, and that's, that's on us. If you feel removed from Christ, and you've got to get it in the movie. May God help us. These are real situations. I suppose if you're summarizing the problem, you see that these false teachers, they major on minor details. They make the minor things the main things. They focus on things that cannot be known with certainty. And so these things that are difficult to understand, they, they build up into some dogmatic assertion. This must be the will of God. They are hobby horse preachers. Doting has that idea of hankering after. The same old things every time they come to bring the word. It's the same old, same old stuff. And they're controversialists, seeking squabbles and fights and contentions. If these features mark the false teachers, they must be, we must be aware they do not mark the preaching in our churches. That we're not like the false teachers in these things. And I suppose in essence, Christ is not central. Again, you take the language of 1 Timothy and the chapter 6. The words are not the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. These controversialists have the idea that they have some special insight. They have an inner, an inner secret into the will of God and the ways of God. Do we know 
anybody like this? On your radios, your televisions, or perhaps even more so now on YouTube. You know, we've got to be watchful. You know, there's some people and you hear this, this new evangelist, this new preacher, he's the best thing in town. And people will say, and I'm, I'm drawing way beyond this congregation here right now, okay? So please, I'm not pointing the finger at anybody here. But they'll say to you, I'm always learning new things. Now, if you're a very, very immature believer, then you've a lot of new things to learn. But if you're a mature believer, there's not an awful lot of new things for you to learn. And what you've got to be careful about is that the new things are really just new things. You want to make sure that the new things you hear are the old things. The old things, confessional truth, biblical truth. And again, just be very careful. I think you all understand that when you begin to search and go into YouTube, what they'll do is they'll suggest the same sort of things to you. And so you'll get the point you believe these things must be true because so many people are saying the same things. And we look to the left and we say the left are totally duped by YouTube and all this mass media. Folks, conservatives are also duped by mass media because we see the same old things, the same old times. And we're as susceptible as anybody else is. We must be alert. False teaching into our midst, but in our cell phones and in our television screens. And we've got to be alert to these things and not naive that we are immune to such devilish devices. We have these general ideas, but there's also the express content here that we're told about these two individuals in 2 Timothy 2 regarding Hymenaeus and Philetus. What do they teach in verse number 18? Well, they've erred concerning the truth. And they say that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. The resurrection is past. The general thought here is that these were individuals who were teaching the reality of spiritual resurrection, but denying the future bodily resurrection of the saints. The Bible does teach a spiritual resurrection. Romans 6, Colossians 3, we've been raised together with Christ Jesus. You're not dead, you're alive. You were dead, Ephesians chapter 2, but now you're alive. But the false teachers, they took that idea and they said, there's your resurrection. It's already happened. Nothing more. That's what happened. Now, how do we know there are people teaching that sort of nonsense? Because we've got 1 Corinthians 15. Turn across there, please. And you will see Paul addresses exactly and precisely this particular false teaching regarding the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15. You may scratch your head and say, well, how could somebody deny the resurrection? Well, here's how they can do it. 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 12. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? There were those who were saying that. You live. Some would suggest you live and you die and you go in your spirit to be with God. Others perhaps were even more fatalistic than that. But there was a denial of the future bodily resurrection of the saints. Paul continues, verse 13, But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not raised? And if Christ be not raised, then is your fe- preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. 
You see what happens? Hymenaeus and Philetus, how are they described in 2 Timothy? They're overthrowing the faith of some. They're denying the resurrection, and some succumb to absolute unbelief. Yea, verse 15, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ. Whom he raised up, or he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, you're yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. See, Paul had to address the fact that there were those, perhaps they had their friends in the Sadducee camp, and they were those who denied the future bodily resurrection of the saints. You see, you go back to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and you realize what Paul says to the Corinthians. He also says similar words here to Timothy, the recognition that to deny the future resurrection is to overthrow the faith. The faith is vain. Your preaching is vain. You see, resurrection, it impacts our future hope. And it impacts our present holiness. The recognition that the body values, the body matters. The recognition that God values the body and God has given us a future hope. You see, let me just stop here. The doctrine of the future bodily resurrection of the saints is not preached enough. That is an opinion. Just an opinion. But I've been saved for 30 plus years now. And I believe in my early Christian life, I did not hear enough preaching on the future bodily resurrection of the saints. Christians that I knew were often content with the fact that when they died, they would go to heaven, which is wonderful. But it's not all. And so these Christians, this idea that what what awaits them was some spiritual existence in the clouds with the harps and the angels. And they had this idea that is what awaits them upon their death. And they had no understanding and grounded concept of a future resurrection. But Christ has promised us a future bodily resurrection. When we die and he returns, then the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we have that prospect. And that's really, really important. Because a future bodily resurrection of the saints is the fulfillment of God's creative purpose. He made man body and soul to fellowship with him. And in the future resurrection, there is a fulfillment of that redemptive purpose. The second Adam brings about that restoration whereby we will live with God, body and soul, forever and forever, without any possibility to fall. That future resurrection teaches that. It exalts Christ's work in that he saves us from every effect of sin. He forgives us and we die and we go to heaven. But he resurrects us, proving that he defeats the last enemy that is death. And death is destroyed and we rise with Christ forevermore. And Christ is glorified in all of his works in that final bodily resurrection. All glory because he has paid the price of sin. The curse is gone. The soul that sinneth it shall die. But the soul that is alive shall live and live forevermore. You may say now, well, this doesn't mean much to me right now. 
young people, it will mean something to you when you stand at your parents' graveside. Right now, you may be 15, 16 years old, and you think, what's all this resurrection stuff? I'm going to live for a long, long time. You may well do. You may not do. But you will more than likely at some point stand at the grave of a loved one, and as they are buried, you will bury them in the hope that their bodies are safe in Christ Jesus, still united to Christ. And there is the sure and certain hope of the resurrection of the dead. It will mean something to you then. It will be a precious truth to you then. And those of us who are closer to death, we will lay our heads upon our pillows, struggling to take our last breath, and we will realize this body is decaying. But when this body is buried into the ground, it will rise again, triumphant o'er the grave, because it's united to Christ Jesus. You see how important these things are? You see, in summary, in terms of false teaching, what do they do? They spread the devil's deception and they distract the saints from the true Christ person, his work, and his glorious victory. Well, secondly, and again, if you're watching the time, don't worry, the last three are brief. Think of the conduct of these false teachers. We're told about their conduct. We get the implication in verse number 14. They strive about words. There is this idea of striving in their minds. This word strive, and actually strive about words, is just one word in the original, but part of that word is this idea of striving that's used in Acts chapter 7 as Stephen preaches to the company there and describes Moses going out to his brethren and two of them strove together. We know from Exodus chapter 3 that striving involves smiting your fellow. They, they were in fisticuffs and more than that, they were, they were in a physical altercation. That's this word strive. It's translated fight in James chapter 4. It's also used in 2 Timothy 2 verse number 24. And the servant of the Lord must not strive. See the contrast here again? True and false. Striving and not striving. And so the false teachers are guilty of being contentious and fighting and striving. This is a really tricky area of application. Got to be really careful here. The liberal love this sort of stuff. They will gladly rest the scriptures to destruction if you begin to tell them how important it is that salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone. And they will say, well, you're striving over words. The Roman Catholic will say, the word alone is not that big a deal. That's the liberal Catholic. The Orthodox will understand it more clearly. You see, we understand that there is the need to contend for the faith. So how do we apply this idea of striving? Well, let me put it this way. First of all, the Christian inclination... Preacher and congregant, the preachers or the Christians' general inclination ought to be toward peace. That should be our mindset. Our default position should be, what can I do to promote peace? Paul, Romans 12, if it possible, as much as in you, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. By God's grace, we seek to be peacemakers. Not striving and not contentious. 
And yet we do understand the Christian obligation is to truth. Jude verse 3, we should strive to earnestly contend for the faith. So striving here, verse 24, the servant of the Lord must not strive. Striving is not the same as contending. And contending is not the same as striving. You've got to tease out that difference and be very clear in that. Yet, as we contend for the faith, we must do so in a manner that's marked by grace and love. Verse 24 again, They must not strive, be gentle unto all men. Here's the opposite of striving. Striving looks like this. Not striving is gentleness. And being clear in teaching. Not shouting, not talking over, but calmly instructing people in the ways of truth. Teaching them with patience, in meekness, in humility, in a gentle spirit. And so as we contend for the faith, the Bible tells us, here is how we must do it. The false teachers, they strive, they're contentious. The faithful men of God are not striving in that regard. So how do we work this out practically? Well, let's say, hypothetically, you may find yourself engaged in some form of controversy. In your home, in the neighborhood, in your workplace, in the church, and you engage yourself in some form of controversy. Of course, nowadays, I've got to add in the whole sphere of social media. And you find yourself, and you're involved in a controversy over some matter that relates to Scripture or to Christian practice, and you find yourself in a controversial situation. First question, you must ask yourself, what am I contending for right now? What's this actually all about? And I tell you, if you're involved in controversy, we are often like the two brethren that fight in Moses' day. The red mist descends. And you can't fight two, you can't separate two brawling men because neither of them are going to back down. And we find ourselves in controversy and we're like those who strive. And so what we've got to do, we've got to back up a little bit and ask ourselves the question, what are we contending for? Is it a matter of fundamental doctrine upon which man's soul hinges? Christ's person and work, the nature of salvation. Are we contending for these things? Then fight to the death. Contend earnestly. Don't back down. Fight for Christ and His truth with all of your soul. But if it's in an area that is not fundamental to the faith, an area where perhaps other Christians will differ with you, then I exhort you, do not strive. Be marked by charity and by grace. It does not mean, again, verse 24 is very, very clear, that Paul exhorts Timothy not to ignore, but to deal with the matter in this particular fashion. Not to pretend we all agree. Not to suggest that we're all the same opinion, we're not. But it does determine how we go about our contentions. The problem is that we face is that in some matters we get so entrenched in matters that are secondary or tertiary or even quaternary. You go down the lines of all of those words We get so entrenched in these things that they become in our minds as if they are fundamental to the faith. That's the difficulty. What's fundamental? What's not? 
And we get so entrenched in controversy that we believe within ourselves we are fighting for a fundamental. And perhaps we're not. I'm not going through every single circumstance and every situation. But as a child of God, we must be those who seek to pursue peace without compromise. That's the point. Don't compromise for a second on truth, but seek to do so in a manner that leads to peace. Why is this so important? Well, because thirdly, note the consequence of false teaching. In general terms, false teachers bring division and destruction. We've mentioned the word strife already. The false teachers promote strife. Verse number 23, knowing that they do gender strifes. And so in their false teaching, they are glad that the church is divided. They're doing the devil's work, and the devil doesn't want unity. The devil wants division. And so the false teachers come in, and they begin to put brother against brother. And brother against brother are fighting, and they're not knowing that unity that's found in Christ Jesus. That is a terrible situation, and the devil does it all the time. They bring in destruction. Verse 17. Their word will eat as doth a canker. These are general terms. Generally, division and destruction. The canker there is a gangrenous ulcer. If you've had a loved one suffer from some sort of diabetic ulcer, that ulcer will just continue to spread and spread. It chews up the flesh around the wound. It is horrific and awful, and it is destructive. That's what the false teachers do in the church. They begin to chew up the peace and the harmony and the beauty of God's people. In particular, again, if that is the generals in particular, they lead to godlessness. Verse number 16, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. The true doctrine, according to 1 Timothy, is unto godliness. This false doctrine is unto ungodliness, unto sin. Ultimately, it can lead to apostasy. I mentioned the word subverting, verse number 14. That is not so much undermining as leading to absolute catastrophe. Those who are hearing the word and are under the word and profess faith in the word are then so undermined that they get to the point that they deny the faith altogether. Verse number 18, overthrow the faith of some. This is the danger of false teaching. Hearing false teaching, even a little leaven that leaveneth a lump, has great consequence to the church and has eternal consequences for the people of God. See, when we see, and I do believe we do see, when we see increasing ungodliness in the professed evangelical church, we must presume there is false teaching at play. An increasing Practice of sin amongst God's professed people must come, at least in part, due to false teaching in the pulpit. The antinomian spirit that dispensationalism promoted in this nation has brought untold damage to the church of Christ. The Old Testament doesn't apply to the church today. Undermining the importance of God's moral law. That's not rightly dividing the word of truth though they use that term. You think of those in our Presbyterian company. You may be aware of the idea of a federal vision that was taught in some churches in recent years. And the idea was that you are part as a part of a Christian family, 
you're by your family brought into the covenant community, and you stay in that covenant community by your faithfulness. And so faith becomes faithfulness. Faith becomes works. And salvation is not by grace alone, by faith alone. It's by being faithful. Subtle things that damage and destroy the people of God. Teaching truth really, really matters. Which is the final thought. The correction for false teaching. And this will begin to point us in the direction of the next number of studies. But the correction for false teaching is truth itself. Verse 15. Timothy, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You see, sometimes we think that the remedy for error is polemics. It's fighting against them. It's all the manner of pointing out all their errors, and that's got a place. But the ultimate remedy for error is truth. Expounding and teaching truth plainly. Truth that is revealed, verse 15, the word of truth, the Bible. Truth that must be examined. Be diligent, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman. Diligent in examining the truth. And then truth that's expounded. Rightly dividing the word of truth. That word, one word in the original, means to cut straight. They're a carpenter, a joiner. They have a saw and they cut the lines straight. In essence, it means using God's word as God intends. Being careful. And so as we kind of finish for now, we'll come back to these things. Three very simple applications. Three B's. Be alert. Be on the alert. That's what Paul told the Ephesian elders. Watch. Grievous wolves. Even among your own selves, perverse folks. Be alert. Be diligent to know the truth. It's often been said that those who were experts in spotting counterfeit currency spent all their time studying the real. You can't spot every false one, but you can really thoroughly know the real. And so for all of us, let's be diligent to continue to know the truth. And thirdly, be prayerful for those who teach the word. Our denomination, our missionaries, be diligent in your prayers for those who must teach the word of God. That if error has such damaging consequences, we need to pray for God to send men, to call men, to equip men, and to keep men who are faithful to the truth. The eternal soul of man depends upon that. Your soul depends upon that. Let's close in prayer. Eternal God and Father, we come before thee today and we realize again we're looking at potential problems and troubles in the church. And we pray, O oh God, you give us a spirit of teachability that we'd be willing to just consider our own lives and our own testimonies that we'd be strong in the truth and yet act in such a way that would show the grace of Christ. Help us, O Lord, to hate error, for charity rejoice in the truth and hates iniquity. Help us, Lord, to be strong regarding our convictions of those fundamentals of the faith. And give us grace and wisdom and discernment 
We do pray for our young people, Lord, as they're exposed to so, so much false thinking in media. Give them an alert mind that they'd be able to discern the times, understand what they're hearing and what they're seeing, and be able to identify those things that are from the devil and those things that are according to truth. So lead us, guide us, and direct us. May we delight in truth today. And may the Sabbath day be a blessing to our souls. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.